Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. So today's question is, how and why does one of the best skiers in North America become a farmer? Well, today in part three of our mini-series on mountain towns and local food systems, our guest is Solomon skier Chris Rubens, who, in addition to flashing pillow lines on film for the past couple of decades, has started First Light Farm with his partner Jesse in Revelstoke, B.C., And so I, along with my wonderful co-host, Kara Williard, who is herself, as you know, a passionate farmer and skier, we talk to Chris about that how and that why. We get into the specifics of what it is like farming in Revelstoke. And of course, we do definitely sneak a good bit of ski talk in there, but perhaps most interestingly, Chris had really meaningful things to say about the parallels that he thinks about all the time between skiing and farming. And perhaps above all, I think Chris and Kara make an extremely compelling case why this actually shouldn't be viewed as some very strange thing that someone might be extremely passionate about skiing and also farming but how these two activities actually work so well together. And I think some of you might be surprised to hear Chris talk about just how meaningful the work of farming has become to him. This is another excellent conversation in our series. Chris is also just one of my favorite skiers out there. And so I am very happy to now get to share with you this conversation with Chris and Kara. And just before we get going here, I do want to make sure that you are subscribed to our Crafted podcast. This is our newest podcast in the Blister Podcast Network, and Crafted is our podcast where every Wednesday we dive deep into the broader craft world and we talk to some of the very best and most passionate and most interesting people, and Crafted is off to a very strong start And this Wednesday, I am very proud to be welcoming onto Crafted John Kimmich, who is the founder of The Alchemist, which is inarguably one of the most historically important breweries in the United States. John was the inventor of Hedy Topper, of course, and you are not going to want to miss that conversation. So you can find Crafted wherever you get your podcasts. Go ahead and subscribe, and then the minute a new conversation is released, you are going to get it delivered fresh to the podcast player of your choice. And with that, let's go ahead and talk with Chris Rubens and Kara Williard. Here we go. Well, Chris Rubens, how are you today and where are you today? Doing really well. Um, I live in Revelstoke, British Columbia, and uh, I'm sitting in my little house, which is on uh, 2.7 acres, um, which we farm on, and it's right in Revelstoke. When did you first get involved with farming? 
at any level? So for me, it, it, um, I mean, I met a girl, <laughs> uh, I met a girl. Was, um, that was kind of her, her passion was to, to start farming. It was kind of at the start of my like deep dive into, um, working on my carbon footprint, uh, which started as a vegetarian and did a variety of things to like less of my carbon footprint, stop less travel and uh, a bunch of other things. And, um, farming just, and food just kind of crept, kept creeping into that system. Um, and so prior to COVID, we were kind of like loosely, I mean, I call it loosely now, but we felt like we were like traveling around the province looking for a piece of land that we could farm on. Um, we kind of thought we were priced out of Revelstoke, but really we were doing a lot of recreating. Um, and during that recreating, we'd like kind of like check out a couple places. Um, and then as we all know, 2020 March pandemic hit and there was so much uncertainty at that time. And I think both of us were just like, why are we not farming? Like, this is crazy. This is like exactly the reason why we would be farming. And so that spring, we obviously all had a lot of time on our hands and we kind of like dived uh, really deep into starting a farm. And we actually wanted to start a community farm in Revelstoke uh, was kind of the first place that we started. And we worked really hard on that for kind of like about two months. Um, and right at the end, the land that we thought was secured fell through and we were sitting there with a bunch of starts and kind of committed to farming at that point. And so we just like all of a sudden hustled and was able to lease a couple of plots of land around Revelstoke. And uh, that first summer just dived in with, I mean, my partner had worked on farms before, but, and had like a good idea of like how to grow plants and things to grow and stuff like that. But definitely had never run like a farm business or anything like that. And so we just like, you know, like, okay, we need this now. And it was like a very like natural process, but not well thought out at all. Um, uh, and, and we had kind of been avoiding leasing land up until that point, because we didn't want to put that investment into land that we wouldn't have otherwise. And right at the end of that season, uh, that pretty much that whole season, we realized like, yes, this is like what we want to do. Like we're totally into it. And we had like this letter written up and we were going door to door, like looking for land and like trying to figure out a future of how we we're going to do this in Revelstoke. And right at the end of the season, this kind of perfect chunk came up. Um, it seemed really expensive at the time, but uh, <laughs> we, uh, yeah, we, we dived into it and, and made it work. And uh, yeah, I mean, we're now nearing the end of our second year on this property, uh, which has gone up significantly in value, um, but so has the farm. So um, life is good. Awesome. Well, I think that's really cool that you guys dove kind of headfirst into farming and it was all about just finding that right piece of land to lease. Um, a lot of people might not know, but that's actually a pretty common model for, I think, like first generation farmers now is to find like a good piece of land to lease. And so I'd be curious as far as, you know, you found this piece and then what happened thereafter as far as trying to get a farm going and what did breaking ground on this property look like? 
Yeah. So like I said, we didn't really want to lease land. Um, but then in the end, we were kind of forced into leasing land. And, and we're so thankful that we did because we learned so much um, about the property that we could get away with. In our mind, we wanted like a f- five to 10 acre piece of property. Um, and we realized we'd like, yes, we would love to have that. And we'd still love to have that, but we didn't need it. Um, and then we also learned um, for us, as soon as you go into greenhouse production, which if you live in a mountain town, you're definitely going to have some sort of greenhouse um, that you need to live near or on that piece of property. Because uh, like every morning and evening, you're opening and closing the greenhouses. Um, and so, yeah, we just like, we we learned a lot. Um, and that first year, um, we did it like full market garden style with raised beds. Um and we kind of grew like almost every vegetable that you could. And we learned which ones were not going to make the cut pretty quickly. Um, and just kind of experimented on which ones would sell. Um, and we kind of landed on um, our primary part of our business is a, a greens, um, like a baby greens um, sort of thing, which is, is pretty common um, for, for a small farm. Um, and that's kind of like, we made a name for ourselves, like right off the bat of these, like very, uh, excellent quality greens. We started selling to restaurants. Uh, we were at the farmer's market. People were coming back just for the greens. Um, and so we do grow every other vegetable, uh, or not every other vegetable, but a lot of different veggies. Um, but our primary kind of, uh, harvest is, is greens and and we kind of, a lot of that was figured out in the first year. What do we mean exactly by greens? Yeah, so we do like a, um, they're all salad mixes. So we do mustard greens is what we do, which is in the same fam, family as arugula. Um, and so we do mustard greens and arugula. And then of course, like kale, we do baby kale, some spinach, stuff like that. But why do you say, of, why do you say of course? Why, why of course kale? What, what about kale makes it an of course? It, it kind of grows like a weed and if you have a market for it, you'd be like silly not to. I mean, they always used to call like marijuana or weed the the cash crop but or the cash tree, but I would call a kale plant a cash tree now because Kale's they, so hot. Well, and they grow all year round and they're really easy to pick and it's not super expensive, but it's a really low uh, labor input on it. Um, and yeah, so with those those baby greens we have like a somewhat intricate system with it um it's nothing like groundbreaking but we're doing uh between three to four hundred pounds a week of that um between farmers markets and restaurants and uh, local grocery stores and stuff like that three to four hundred pounds on 2.7 acres but you're not actually growing on 2.7 acres no, so we grow on about an acre and a half is what we kind of, or an acre and a half to like two acres is kind of what we're somewhere in the middle of right now. Um, a lot of that is in, we're not like fully utilizing all of that. So some of that's in cover crop and um, stuff like that. We're kind of growing into it, but the the greens take up a lot of that. And and we are like like replanting beds every 
like our greens beds we've planted three times this year so you're actually growing on more land essentially i guess to some degree that's awesome and i think i mean what's great about greens in these mountain towns is they are um pretty cold tolerant and you they grow really quickly so I'm sure, I mean, you guys are probably getting like multiple cuttings off the same bed of greens and they're just constantly bouncing back. Um, so they are a great model for, I think, a lot of farmers to think about in some of these colder climates in that they just grow really well. They grow for a lot of the year and people love them. Um, you know, everyone's willing to buy some salad greens and other greens, um, different mixes like that. So I think that's a great, great way to go. Yeah. And, and, like, so we, we're able to start, um, selling our greens, like it's like kind of like the first or second week of May. Um, whereas most of our other crops, not really getting into them to like middle of June, they're really pumping in middle of July to like late August. So it's like, it really like helps your income, um, in those like early, early days. Um, and, and then that's like a really big part of it for us with farming is it's like great to romanticize farming, but at the end of the day, you need to make money at it. And like it, you work really, really hard. And even though like greens is a cash crop, it's like you're working pretty hard for not a lot of money. Um, but it does make it much more sustainable for us. Um, and I, I guess that's like overall what we're trying to show is that you instead of taking this 2.7 acres um, and developing it and, you know, into like another hotel or Airbnb or whatever is that you can actually create a sustainable lifestyle off of this and live in a mountain town. Um, I mean, you're not going to get filthy rich, that's for sure, but uh, we're not looking to get filthy rich. We're just trying to make it, make it work. And I think, if you have that, like you put that emphasis on the monetary side of it, it's like super important because then if you don't, then it's going to end. <laughs> you, you can only not make money for so long. Yeah. So I guess on that, I'd just be curious to hear more of what the growing season up in Revelstoke looks like and kind of what months of the year you're able to grow. Maybe some of the planning that goes into it as far as, you know, seed starting and things like that. But um, I know we've kind of touched on it in the couple previous episodes, but I think it's really important for people to kind of get a feel for what that production looks like in a place like Revelstoke. I kind of mentioned earlier that we traveled all around BC looking for pieces of land and we looked in places where like farming is the thing to do, you know, like that's what people do there. Um, the disadvantage of doing it somewhere there is your competition's much steeper, um, but your growing season's better. Um, but we, I mean, I'm a skier. I love the mountains. I love the outdoors. So is my partner. And uh, we are super, super lucky that Revelstoke is actually blessed with both of those things. So it's a, the, one of the best places that you can recreate in the world um, and all sorts of things. But it's actually also a crazy good place to grow food. Um, and it has a long history um, before we had a... <laughs> It's it's a, a tense subject around here, but um, we had a a dam go in below us, and I'm bad with dates, so I don't know the dates. But basically, they flooded um, all the good farmland, or that's what the old timers say is like all the good farmland. There's still plenty of good farmland around, but 
Uh, I'm sure the best of it probably did get flooded. Um, and kind of ever since then, farming hasn't been a really big part of this community, which is unfortunate because it did at one point grow more food than the Okanagan, which is kind of the, the hub of BC for, for fruit, fruit growing and, and whatnot. That being said, it is like a mountain mountainous area. So, um, every season's different, but like this, this winter, we had a lot of snow in town. Uh, so we had well over a meter of snow in our, our backfield. So it makes growing in the winter very challenging. There is a farm in town that does manage to do that, but it's a, it's a crazy amount of work. So we basically, we kind of start seeds kind of like beginning of March. Um, I mean, some a little bit earlier, like onions and stuff like that, but kind of our, our bulk of our starts kind of in March. And then, uh, we can start planting kind of middle of April um, and then start getting into like mini harvests um, at the start of May. Uh, it really turns on in July, August, we get hot. Generally we get like a pretty hot, dry summer. Um, so we're growing everything from tomatoes, peppers, cucumbers, um, all those things. And they, they do really well in the summer. And then it all kind of shuts down I mean, you can grow into November, but basically after kind of middle of October, you're not going to get a lot of growth going on. Uh, we start just losing that light and get into lots of moisture and disease. And um, for someone like myself who has a full-time job in the wintertime, I'm quite happy to just like call our quits in the middle of October and actually take some downtime. But you can, yeah, you can totally push the seasons here if you want to. And the growing season when it's on is uh, a really, really good growing season for, for this area. That's cool. It sounds pretty similar to Crested Butte, actually, and like the timeline of our season and probably a lot of what we're able to produce as well. Really, Kara? The, even the variety and range sounds similar? Yeah. I mean, we definitely, I think, rely a lot on season extension, especially if we want to grow into October, November, like using row cover. And then, of course, like having a lot of greenhouses like you mentioned earlier but as far as the crops and kind of that time frame as far as seed starting and then planting out and then when the harvest starts and kind of starts to pick up as well that all sounds somewhat similar i would have thought that crested butte must be way higher than we are here like we're at we're at 450 meters whatever that goes into feet 1500 ish 1500 yeah so we're super low um which is kind of our like saving saving grace here like our frost free days are we have a pretty good window of uh, lack of frost we just our problem is sunlight oh see yeah i guess there's still some differences there yeah we definitely get the the frost the unexpected frosts and all that yeah i bet just from that added elevation and then but you guys get so much sun i bet so much sun <laughs> yeah. so much sun. it's pretty good it's pretty good in that regard hey important thing i have to ask you before i forget Cody Townsend and I, on our last Reviewing the News episode, which was this past week, we do a thing now. This is completely on Cody, so please don't blame me for this. Cody decided we were going to do a monthly uh, segment called The Most Canadian News. <laughs> and his choice this week was talking about all the feral pigs 
coming into Canada making very cute pigloos. And I was like, I'm actually talking to Chris in a couple days. I wanted to get your take on pigloos. I don't have any idea what he's talking about. <laughs> See, I think this is Cody's maybe fake newsing us here. Yeah, I think he is too. I think Cody was just like, watch how stupid Jonathan is. I'm going to make up this whole thing about these feral pigs making these super cute pigloos. And then he's going to go on another podcast and embarrass himself <laughs> in front of the world. So, well well played, Cody. Yeah. Okay, you are not, you're not up on the phenomenon sweeping Canada of pigloos. I'm not... But to be to be fair, I'm not like that up to date on news lately. So, <laughs> okay, <Yeah. laughs> that was my best question, Kara. You have anything meatier than that? Um, no, but I'm glad we've moved past that. <laughs> Kara's so upset right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect, Chris. If you just want to give a little plug on your farm, I mean, I know you've kind of talked about it a bit, but I want to hear about your farm. Please tell us its name. Please tell us maybe like some of, I know your partner, Jesse, I'd love to hear more about um, kind of like the way you guys run things and just a bit more about like some of the principles or some of like the beliefs that you have when it comes to farming and how you kind of approach that with some, some values. Yeah. So our farm is called First Light Farm uh, based in Revelstoke. Uh, we're in our third year of production and it's myself and my partner, Jesse, um, that run it. And, uh, this year we actually hired, uh, two guys to help us out. We're a market garden. Uh, we're gardening on about, uh, an acre and a half. And yeah, we do everything from tomatoes, peppers, cucumbers, carrots, beets, um, lots of salad greens, potatoes, kind of your standard market garden. Um, our outlets are... Uh, we have a really strong farmer's market here on Saturdays. Uh, it's pretty pretty wild and crazy. And then uh, we have a lot of local restaurants that support us as well um, with our salad greens. And then um, we're also in a couple local grocery stores. And then kind of one of the cooler things that we've done here is we have a little um, honor system farm stand on the street. I love that. Those are awesome. <laughs> Yeah, and it's been like immensely popular. There's nobody really doing it. There's a couple of people that do it with eggs, um, but it's kind of just eggs, whereas we have like fully stocked fridges. Um, and it's like this total honor system. To be honest, we don't keep like super good track of it, but it seems like we don't have any problems with it. Um, there's nobody like ripping the money thing off the wall. Um, and it's kind of like, I think it's heartwarming for everybody in the sense that we can still do this as humans because there's so much negative news in the world. And it's like, no, humans are actually pretty good. Um, they, they can handle this. And, and it, uh, it's, it's really popular with our community. Like uh, just yesterday, we like ran almost $400 through that, that little stand. It's two fridges. It's like, um, it's pretty cool to, to see something like that work so well. So yeah, that's kind of our our gist of our business. Um, we are certified organic, so we obviously believe in that. Um, we do till. We're not um, down the no the no till thing. We would definitely working on tilling less and and all that stuff. Um, I think that's like one of the the biggest learnables I've had personally about 
all this is like you come in with all these like ideals and ideas of where you want to go and then you get a couple pests that like kind of stop you in your tracks and um i feel like that's going to come later as we just learn more about farming and um kind of figure out what we're doing a bit better because it you know, the first couple of years, you're kind of just surviving. I mean, I feel like you're kind of always just surviving when you're farming, but yeah, we're, we're, we're basically, yeah, trying to do it as like eco-friendly as possible, but, um, also be conscious of like using machinery to make money. Um, yeah, we have like a, a good amount of investment into some machines that have worked really, really well for us. Um, and have a lot of like labor saving time and also back saving, um, which is important um, because it is like a very labor intensive job and I already have one of those in the winter. <laughs> I think building efficiency into farming is so critical these days. And when the machine can help you do that, it's such a great way to go. I mean, just saving time and saving, like you said, your body over the long term is really important to the longevity of farming. Yeah, totally. It's pretty funny. I was just listening to a podcast of Elliot Coleman, um, which is like oh, yeah. the OG of organic farming. And like when you read his books, he's like, two people can take care of two acres by themselves, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, holy cow, that seems like quite a lot of work. And he, and he's like, yeah, and you don't need a tractor, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, I was looking at his farm a while ago. I was like, I see a bunch of tractors. And then on this podcast... I listened to he's like the guy asked you know like if you could do it all over again like what would you do he's like i probably would have got a tractor earlier <laughs> i was like yeah no doubt fair enough <laughs> yeah it, it's a classic thing of um and it's something that i learned from the mountains is like you don't need to like be on this like straight path i, I like taking a little bit from here a little bit from there a little bit from there and you kind of figure out your own way and that that's it's so incredible with farming there's so many different ways to do it everybody has slightly different pieces of land so some things work for somebody and they don't work for any other people but uh it's really cool and there's like tons of information out there right now um on the internet but um just even the farmers um you know i come from a mountain uh a mountain background where i think we have like one of the most amazing communities uh, that people love sharing ideas and, and, and differences and, and you like really can spin off these ideas. But the, the farming scene is like on a whole nother level. Um, talk, like, I mean, it's hard to talk to farmers in the middle of the season because they're too busy, but a lot of them will even make the time then. But in the off season, I feel like you can call up like cold call just about any farmer and they will like tell you all about their business and what's working, what doesn't. Um, and there's no like, there's just like no competitive side. Everyone's just trying to help the other person do better, which is like really cool. Yeah. I love that network. It's just, it's really good. <laughs> I have an idea. Let's talk about skiing. <laughs> You've mentioned it a couple times. And so this is the case with you. Then you do fully stop the farm stuff during winter we're we're full-on ski mode at that point is this true well that's how it what worked in my brain for sure but i really 
I didn't realize how much off-season work there is in the farm. I was like, huh. oh, farming's perfect for with skiing. It's like you can't farm in the ski season and you can't ski in yeah. the farm season. It's perfect. But <laughs> I now realize that you have no time to do any sort of organizing when farm season hits. So all the organizing gets done in the winter. But that's all computer work um, and just kind of planning and buying whatever infrastructure um, you're doing for the year. We're We're still like setting up our place um so we're still spending lots of money which keeps us busy in the winter time and then uh, my partner jesse she does a lot of the starts that or she does all the starts um so that takes that load off of me um during the winter but yeah certainly um come like kind of mid to end of october done with farming um and it's on to skiing and uh yeah i mean farming like working for yourself is pretty nice. Like I'm talking to you guys right now so I can make time for my day to do ski work. Um, and then I'll go out farming for the rest of the day um, in, in between kind of these, these things. Um, it gets a, it's kind of nice actually um, like July and August, you just like don't have any time for a whole lot of out, a whole lot else in your life. But that's like when ski season is like off, like there's no emails coming in. Um, they kind of started maybe like a week or two ago. So kind of like the end of August, I start seeing my inbox, um, start picking up and that's kind of right when farming starts like quieting down and, and chilling out a little bit. So you have a bit more free time. Um, so it, it, it is, it's a good balance between the two overall. It's like a good, a good, uh, a good fit. Where are you with skiing these days? Like, <laughs> are you, you know, are you on the like let's go lighter gear further out faster are you like nah have you dabbled in that you know like how are you thinking about the sport these days and what you want to be doing in it yeah that i mean that's a pretty loaded big question so i want to say like it would have been about five years ago would have been the height i wasn't working i mean traditionally in the summer before farming, I was doing carpentry or some sort of construction. Um, so I've always like worked a lot in the summers, but there's a couple summers there where I took completely off and I was just like running around the mountains with, uh, primarily with Greg Hill. Um, we were doing tons of climbing, tons of Alpine in the summer. And to be honest, I, we had one summer where we did like crazy objectives and did all these things. And it was amazing and it was really fun, but kind of left me wanting more it wasn't like as fulfilling as i thought it would be and then so yeah like that kind of like came into the system and that that was like definitely i was doing like a lot of like fast and light stuff super fit um felt really good and then with skiing so part part of the reason with farming to start farming was to find another monetary uh, thing for myself so I didn't have to rely on skiing um, to be like okay I, I have to be a pro skier because that's where my paycheck is and it's a pretty sweet paycheck <laughs> but it's also like I love skiing that's like why I became a pro skier it was never ambition to be a pro skier it was like I love skiing and I kept getting these opportunities and you're like why wouldn't I um, and so it was actually this past season um, like the farm did pretty well last year and was like, okay, this, this could be like 
something that we make a living at. Um, and it gave me the chance to like really sit back and ask myself that question of like, what do I want to do with skiing? Like, do I want to be a pro skier anymore? Do I want to do this stuff? And, and uh, I've primarily been filming with Bl- the Blank Collective the last couple of years. Um, they're this awesome group of guys. Nobody takes themselves very seriously. Um, and we're out there really having fun. Um, we've been working a lot on the safety side of things. Um, we're, we're, I mean, we're a small, like a small crew, like relatively budget operation. So we're like out there by ourselves. So safety has been like paramount, but we like, I've worked really hard at that. Um, really good systems going on. So it's been super fun. And that was kind of the thing that I realized this year is that I like, I love being a pro skier. I love filming um, and like kind of where I was going with, with the Greg Hill stuff and the summer stuff before is, um, at that time I was doing like more ski mountaineering, like, um, that kind of stuff. And, um, I felt like I was just spending too much time being exposed to danger. Like these, these, you know, it's, it's kind of a numbers game, right? Like, or it's not kind of a numbers game. It is a numbers game. The more time you're out there, the, the chances just increase. Um, and I love skiing and I want to keep doing it until I'm old. That's a really important part to me. Um, and so I've found this like really nice balance in filming where I'm comfortable doing, uh, I mean, film lines, they're, they're gnarly for sure. Um, but I can really choose my days. Like that's, that's when good stuff goes down. Filming is when it's good. It's like not pushing your, your, you're not pushing conditions because whenever you push conditions, when you're filming, it always goes wrong. Um, and, and you can, there's just so many different things you can do. You know, if you go out and it's like a high avalanche day, you're like, okay, let's focus on like small tight shots of turns or whatever. You don't always have to go after like the big objectives or whatever. And like, I enjoy that creativity, um, that we do. So yeah, the short answer is, um, I'm still loving being a pro skier and I really enjoy building those segments. I definitely, I'm really feel like the focus for me in the next little bit is going to be more on trying to build some sustainable ski segments. Um, with like, I mean, most of them already are, they're just like not showcasing them. Um, so yeah, just like trying to push that aspect and explore that aspect. Um, I think will be super fun, but yeah, that, I don't know. Skiing is just a, a pretty special, incredible sport. Being a professional skier is a pretty dream job. That's for sure. You got me thinking while you were talking about like with schemo, you know, you have to be out big days, long days, often very tough conditions. And you got me thinking about your typical film segments versus say, Cody's film segments with the 50 project, your snow always looks way better than <laughs> Cody's snow. Yeah. Facts. I mean, uh, I love Cody. I love what he's doing, <laughs> but I do not envy what he's doing whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's all, that's a lot to take on what he's doing and he's got a kid now and yeah, it's a, it's a lot. It's a lot without a kid. Do you have a favorite film segment? If, if there's somebody who somehow 
doesn't have a sense of the kind of lines you ski and the like glorious conditions I often see you uh, skiing in films. Give me one segment of a film that we could kind of highlight, like go check this out. Like one that I've been in? Yep. I mean, there's a Mount Kane episode that we did with Matchstick uh, a few years ago. That's like one of my, it's uh, frozen in time. I love that yeah. segment. Just yeah. When you when you can combine a good story and good skiing, that's that's when you nail it. And we went to Mount Kane, which is on Vancouver Island, and not. I mean, it it gets good, but it's fickle, like very fickle. And we were there for ten days and just scored, like. And it's this incredible atmosphere. It's like totally like going back in time, like well, frozen in time, right? It's like. Um, old tea bars and and that's like you know that's how I grew up skiing on on that that style of um, I mean it was Sunshine Village but it was it was more of that style uh, people drinking beers and having fun and um, yeah we we sometimes lose that with all the high speed quads around and and stuff like that and and maybe that is why like I kind of really love ski touring is. Um, you get away from all of that and um, it keeps you super grounded out there. I mean, I lo- just love skiing powder too, but <laughs> I'd, I'd probably do that. If I could just do that off a ski lift, I probably would. Sure. Okay. Maybe we ought to get back to our regularly scheduled programming of talking about farming, but I very much liked this interlude. So thank you. Kara, where should we go? Yeah, I also enjoyed it and I enjoyed the talk of skiing powder (laughs) because let's be honest, that's why we're all here. But I think I'd also be curious just to hear because as we kind of dove into this series about mountain towns and local food systems, a lot of people are talking about how farming is a great way to connect to some of these places we love and that it kind of gives a new perspective on the land and just a really great way to connect to the land. And so I'd be kind of curious, I know through my journey of farming and skiing and kind of having that seasonal balance that I have really found myself connecting to the land in a whole nother way, like really watching the snowpack and knowing that that's what's going to be watering the crops come spring. Um, I'd be curious to kind of hear about some of the connections you've made between skiing and farming and, and what that means to you. Yeah. I mean, I mean the big, the biggest and easiest connection of skiing and farming is you're just at the mercy of nature. Um, and as soon as you trying to try to fight it or try to battle it, you're, n- you're never going to win. You just have to like, and if you get upset about it, then you're never going to enjoy yourself and it's a losing battle. So I, I just like, I mean, it's the stressful part about farming too. It's a stressful part about skiing. Um, especially when you're trying to film or, or something like that is you're like really looking for those like prime conditions. It, it teaches you a lot of patience. It teaches you how to be humble. Um, and they, they're honestly like, I, I find farming and skiing in the mountains like very, very similar. Like you have to, you have to listen to what's going on out there um, and, and really like have your eyes open as to, to what's happening. Um, and nature's trying to tell you what to do. Um, it's up to you whether you want to see those signs or not. But I, I mean, I, I have to say that like farming as a pro skier for so long, people come up to you and you're like, Oh, you're Chris Rubens. And it's so awesome. You inspired me. And it's, it's really cool with farming. Every week we go to the farmer's market 
and we have an amazing community here in Revelstoke and people are so appreciative of you growing food for them. They're so supportive. It's kind of like a whole new level of appreciation that you get from that sort of thing. And like, definitely like the first, the first years you knew you were so exhausted coming into the farmer's market and the farmer's market was like, really like you're boost up for the week. You'd go there and you'd feel so good about yourself afterwards. Cause people were just, yeah, they're really appreciative of what you do and they understand how hard it is. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, you connect to a whole different demographic of people. I mean, some, some are the same people like, you know, we have lots of our friends that I ski and climb with and, and whatnot, um, our customers, but we have a whole different demographic of, of people that, um, maybe don't ski or definitely don't ski to the degree that, uh, we ski. So it, it's cool finding, you know, like a different demographic in a small town. And then the whole other side of that, of like connecting to the land, like the, the thing when we were searching around for, for land around BC, the one thing that I really have always loved about Revelstoke is you can see a bunch of different mountains from pretty much anywhere in Revelstoke. And I love when I'm working down in the valley and I can glance up like the, the big iconic mountain here is Mount Bagby. And I've been up it in the summer. I've been up in the winter many times. I have all these experiences and I can, you know, maybe, maybe I'm feeling down or tired and I would like glance up at that. And I can remember this like epic ski moment I had up there. Um, and I think that's really cool. You know, like I, I, I don't get to play as much in or at all in the summer um, this year, but it just, being here and have had those experiences in the mountains and being able to see them, um, it keeps me kind of grounded and, and I don't have like the FOMO. I get to like look up there and like relive that experience. And I think that's really cool. And yeah. And then the other side of it is like farming gives you lots of time to daydream about what you want to do in the winter and come up with different ideas and, um, different inspirations and, um, yeah. Can I just say for the record, and you guys can both check me on this if you're like, no, everybody already knows this. I think it's actually maybe one of the coolest, but perhaps not discussed or underrated aspects of living in a mountain town is you constantly are looking around and you're like, I remember the last time I was up there. And I remember the last time I was over on that line and I can't wait to try to get on that line this year. It's the best. Does everybody already know this? I mean, it seems obvious, but I totally agree. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of mountain towns you can't see that much from hmm. necessarily. That's a good point. I guess not like full mountain towns, but like, yeah, like not, not all of them. Like even Whistler, for example, like you can see like Whistler and Blackcomb but there's not like a ton of other mountains that you can see from there. I might be, I might be lying there. I don't know, but I think that's amazing. Like, even if you're like working in your office, like you like, you have that, that view out there and it, yep. it keeps your stoke going. I think, I think it's, I think it's super important. Yeah. Like today I had to run down to the post office 
And I'm like, that's maybe the most boring thing you can do in the world. But like <laughs> looking at these different objectives and uh, like, I think next week it's time to go get on top of that. And like, man, sorry. But I'm just very happy to hear you sort of talk about that because I'm like, that feels very much like a real thing among my like mundane day-to-day -day stuff. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. I mean, that's a big part of the reason. I mean, we, I've, we feel so fortunate to have found this property here in Revelstoke because we, we weren't sure that we could get it. And to do it on farmland would, I mean, farmland is like beautiful in a whole different sense, but it it's not the same. Like I, I really enjoy that aspect of being surrounded by mountains and being surrounded by the mountain community. I, 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 I love the mountain community and com to combine it with farming is, um, yeah, it's even better for me. Yeah, I totally agree. And I hear you on all of that. I think, uh, especially when you're talking about some of the frustrating moments on the farm and just looking up and seeing the mountains and being able to connect in that way. And just bringing food to the mountain community that you love um, connects you in a different way. And I think that's really cool. And that kind of brings us full circle and like why we wanted to do this whole podcast series, because we want people in mountain towns to think about some of where their food's coming from and how they can better support local food in their mountain town. And I think drawing some of these connections, you know, even when it's just skiing or biking or recreating outdoors, but then trying to connect that a bit more to the thing we do every day, which is eat food. So I think that's awesome. I guess I kind of look as farming as a, as a little bit of a the ultimate prepper thing to do because you're not like a cons total conspiracy theorist like living in their bunker and just farming for themselves. You're making a business out of it and you're making a career out of it. But if the world goes down, like if it if something happens, then you're sitting in a pretty awesome spot. And I, I mean, I, I think over the last couple of years, we're getting increasingly, increasingly, we're dancing with that line of, of stability. I would say, to be honest, like the one big takeaway from the pandemic for me, and then we actually had really terrible floods that cut us off from like our main port uh, last uh, November, October, November, uh, is how resilient our supply chains are. Um, they're incredibly fragile but they're also like there's a lot of people working very hard to like supply that um but with climate change and global instability i think we're going to increasingly see uh food security become a really really big problem um and i think it's important for people to know how and why to grow food mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting right i think many of us, wherever we live, we certainly think of things like, it's really a good thing that firefighters exist in our community, right? Those are staples. We need them. But it would be really cool for people, maybe through this little podcast series we're doing, but just in general to start thinking that the local farmers actually are part of the very bedrock or the security of this community. And because there's different forms of that. One, yeah, it's great if someone can put fires out when things go up in flames, but there's a lot of different aspects to community security. Educators, obviously, a big one and probably another underappreciated one. But I think with what Chris, you're doing and Kara, what you're doing and 
getting more people thinking about these topics, I think that's really important for Chris, all the reasons you just articulated, but it would be cool to continue to ingrain in more people this notion of like, right, if you actually care about the stability of a community, this actually is a seriously significant step that a person could take um, to contribute to that community stability. Yeah. <clears throat> and I'm sure, Kara, you you know as well as anyone that's how much food you can produce on a very small piece of land. Like people think it's like, we need all this land to do all these things, but it's pretty wild how much food you can produce and small size producers, you know, you know, you get, you get a few in town and all of a sudden you've like start putting a dent in food security pretty quick. But yeah, I, I mean, I see ourselves largely of a role of like educating and showing that it's possible. And then, I mean, I think that's kind of the cool thing about having employees and starting down that, that train is then, you know, you have a couple more people that are educated in farming, whether they stick with it or not, that's, that's up to them. But I think the more people that we know how that have like an idea of how to grow food, the the better, I think they'll, no matter how you look at the world, it's that'll, that'll make it a better place for sure. Well, Chris, I know firsthand how busy this time of year can be. Um, It's definitely like the peak of harvest season, maybe a little post peak, but um, I also know that you and Jesse just had a baby. So I'm just wondering how it's all going as far as balancing these things and being, you know, new farmers who are really making things happen, producing a ton of food, raising a baby and doing all of these things simultaneously. Well, you can, I mean, I guess you can announce to the world, but you know that you didn't plan it when it comes in the middle of the busiest month of the year. (laughs) (laughs) No, but uh, yeah, so we just had a little guy named Huxley. He's three weeks old now. Um, And yeah, he's super fun. I mean, we're, we're obviously super excited for him, but that's such a crazy, the whole thing is full crazy because you, you don't even like, even in the birth agreement, you like still like kind of can't really conceptualize having, having a kid and then comes out and you don't know how you're going to feel about him. You know, some people don't, don't like feel attached to them right away. Um, we were lucky. We were like instantly fell in love with them and we were like, not the baby people, you know, like, yeah, but we're fully the baby people now as everybody (laughs) happens. I've been refraining from like sending tons of baby fixtures out to my friends, but, um, to be honest, I mean, we're three weeks in, he's sleeping, he's eating. Um, I think we're kind of in a honeymoon stage because so far it's pretty, pretty easy. We're both joking that so far farming is way harder than having a kid. Yeah, just, yeah, I don't know. You like, when you see a parent and the kid's losing it, you kind of feel sorry for them. But when you're that parent, you just like, I don't know, the crying and stuff kind of doesn't bother you as much. You're, you're, you're just like, you've, you know, him why he's crying or whatever. And you just kind of figure it out, you know, um, so far, <laughs> um, so far. Yeah, that was part of the reason that forced it, or not forced us, but like we decided to hire two people um, and they ran ran the farm for that kind of couple days. That was my three days off I had this year was when we gave birth. <laughs> uh, um, 
so that so that was like full full crazy for sure that week um but now we're like settling into the groove but it was really important to us and and it will continue to be important and and we'll we will have to figure out how to like figure out that like work-life balance you know you want to be a part of your kid's life but you it's also like really important to us to to keep the farm going and keep doing what we love um on that side of it and and kind of lead by example in that instead of like um just being like folding over and just like going out and making a buck because we have a kid now um we're, we still really want him to grow up with this kind of lifestyle which is definitely going to be different to a lot of kids that get brought up um how we go about that i don't know we'll find out (laughs) um but it's super fun so far and uh yeah i'm I'm excited to see if he likes farming or maybe i mean that that's like i joke that's my retirement plan is like he'll grow up on the farm we'll make him farm he'll hate farming and go out and get a real job and then when mom and dad are like slaving away at the farm and he's like rich and famous then he'll come back and start ourselves out um but no no hopefully we don't hopefully we don't do that and install like a a good love of at least where his food comes from and appreciates it and maybe he can share that with his his friends too uh, which I think would be super cool. One of the things I've been thinking about in this conversation was, I don't know, it seems like maybe, Chris, check me on this, but maybe something like 10, 15 years ago, we started seeing kind of skiers, you know, single sport professional athletes. We started seeing people kind of, it's like, well, now, like now it kind of feels like every skier is also a mountain biker or every skier is also a trail runner. Like we've seen this. It's not, you're not just one thing. Like it was maybe 15, 20 years ago. You are these multiple things. And as you guys were talking today in this conversation and we have two farmer skiers here. I like this idea that maybe this will be like the new wave, right? So instead of, you know, I'm sure we will continue to have our skiers who are also like now insane mountain bikers or like they also love the trail running side of things. I like the idea that maybe you two are helping create this new being, which is the skier farmer. And they'll be like, yeah, you know, 10 years ago, I listened to this conversation with Chris and Kara and this series on the Blister podcast, and that this is like a new trajectory that you guys are kind of putting out into the world. I very much like this idea. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, I like that <laughs> idea too. Yeah. Yeah, it, it works. <laughs> the ski world's changed so much in my life. I mean, like, I'll be going into my 20th year of being sponsored by Solomon um, this coming winter. And when we started, like, like the matchsticks back in the day, like before social media and all that, like, I'm not even that old. And it feels like it's like that old. We're, we're filming on film. But you would literally spend your entire winter filming for this, like, five to six minute segment. And now, like, you'll do that in two weeks. And then you'll also be posting about it the whole time on social media. So... I I don't think that that person 
that's like the skier that's mountain biking in the summer or trail running. I don't think that's new. It's just being shown so much now with social media. Like you, you're somewhat expected to be posting like 24 seven all year round, you know? So it's like, I mean, tons of those pro skiers back in the days, I mean, the most obvious one was working construction. You know, there's tons of, tons of carpenters out there that were also pro skiers. There's, you know, there's, not a ton of professional athletes in the action sports world that don't need another income. I think that's like one of the, the things that's lesser known about these people. Like you see, you see them in the, in the movies and you think that they're like, well, they must be like rich and famous and whatever, but not, you know, there's not too many people that just ski for a living um, or just mountain bike or whatever. You could probably count them on, two hands i bet um and then i think you're talking about a a group of people that are super motivated um and get bored easily so you gotta keep them entertained somehow i I know there's a little bit of that in me you know it's like i sit around and just go like running on the same trails all the time or biking on the same trails i kind of get bored and need, need something more so um yeah, I think there's a lot of people in, in the same boat as, as me. Um, and it's definitely nice with the farm side of things because um, it's like definitely by far the most fulfilling thing I've ever done in my life uh, as far as work goes. Yeah, like hands down, it's like a totally different experience. Well, Chris, thank you. Thanks for joining us on this. It's great to hear more of the details on what you've been up to. Uh, I have been very much wondering from afar and kind of keeping an eye on you from afar and uh, really appreciate you taking the time to kind of flesh things out for us. And uh, best of luck as you finish up this harvest and get to that farmer's market tomorrow. And uh, yeah, please say hello to Jesse and uh, and Huxley for us. Perfect. Well, do. Thank you guys. I was uh really awesome conversation. I love talking about this stuff and super cool to talk with you guys about it. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. All right, Chris, you take care. You too. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Chris for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And from all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again tomorrow over on our Off the Couch Running Podcast, Wednesday on our Crafted Podcast, Thursday over on our Bikes and Big Ideas Podcast, and Friday, of course, it's Gear 30 time. So lots of great conversations coming at you this week. Subscribe to those shows, and we will talk to you real soon.